Hello, everyone. This is episode three of Hunter Gatherers, and I'm Philip Koo and Techwin Lim here with me. Hi, everyone. So for today's episode, we thought of um, discussing, uh, well, what are we discussing? Maybe you should introduce the topic. Yeah, so I thought as a kind of, a, in a way, it's a kind of a cheat, but uh, earlier in the week, I was involved in a conference and for that conference, I had to record a video. I think this is the first time I actually pre-recorded a video for a conference, but uh, so I had this video handy. And so it's something that I could upload and share. And so I, in a way it's a 10 minute summary of a hundred thousand word thesis for my PhD. And um, well, the topic is human elephant relationships. And specifically, I talk about hunter-gatherer relationships with elephants in peninsular Malaysia and, uh, and go through all of the, uh, well, the I look at relationship from many different angles, uh, mostly from the ecological angle, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think the conference went well. They enjoyed the, that perspective. I got some nice feedback from historians, from anthropologists, and there are all sorts of people attending that conference, including uh, people focusing on philosophy and sociology. And yeah, well, uh, yeah, you can maybe fill your kind of uh, impression and uh, yeah, I won't repeat what I actually said. I think uh, maybe we could uh, we could like share the link to the video. Yeah. yeah, this would be a good time if anyone, for those people watching who haven't watched it, uh, click on the link, watch the video. It's ten minutes. If you're, it's a it's a really nice short uh, video, lots of information, and uh, yeah, I don't see a problem with repeating some of the information and. Uh, I know personally one friend who's quite interested in, in the, the subject matter because he is engaged with elephant. Um, he's re, he reforesting and uh, creating a food forest on a mountainside in Thailand. And there are elephants that come and uh, specifically go and uh, eat durians and other uh, crops from, from uh, farmers nearby. But, so he's had experiences with elephants there. So um, why don't you, how should we begin without repeating all the information? It's interesting. Well, let me ask you uh, about the conference. Were there also people in elephant conservation? Uh, yeah, there as yeah. Well? so it's not, it was nice. It was people from all around the world. So some people were working in Africa, some people from India and Sri Lanka, and they shared their different experiences. And yeah, a, lo a lot of them were, well, the first session was all about active conservation efforts of, for wild elephants. But a lot of the other sessions were about the relationship between people and captive elephants, like the Mahout culture, which I also find uh, quite fascinating and interesting from a um, point of history, actually, because Malaysia sort of lost that culture and that we, it was a very important part of uh, Malaysian history. But 
you know, with the advent of the motor car and the railway, the elephants, more or less, this whole idea of capturing elephants kind of like uh, died out in, um, in Malaysia. I, I let's go back to prehistory and in in your paper and also in uh, your video I think you mentioned all the the various species or that there were so many species of, of elephants uh, around the world I think that's really interesting just as and at and that there were different human species at the same time I mean personally one you know, one has this, uh, there's always that question, if you had a time machine, would you go into the future or into the past? And I would love to go into the the time of prehistory, just uh, witness the different human species as well as all the other species, but specifically human species. Um, so what's your thoughts personally? I, I know you don't make a, a, a judgment call on, on why the different elephant species disappeared, but what's your personal suspicion? Was it, uh, was it the humans or was it uh, the climate, climatic change? Or yeah, I have, I, I have no doubt that humans played a role. I don't know how big that role was. I, I, I think, it, you know, I was asked a very difficult question following my, uh, my presentation uh, by a historian. And he asked why uh, the African and Asian elephant, you know, this uh, the current the Asian elephant, Elephas maximus, survived, whereas like all of the, el the elephants went extinct. And there used to be elephants in uh, both South America and in North America. Of course, you've heard of the mastodons, the woolly mammoth, but even in the tropics uh, of South America, those called something, uh, something called the gomphothere. And, uh, and yeah, there were, uh, the, like the answer I gave was sort of a stock answer in that these, the, the large mammals in the Americas had never had to deal with humans before and therefore they were not prepared, unlike the African elephant, which had uh, a long history of, uh, interaction with humans um, and uh, the historian he said well you know he's not convinced with that answer and I actually followed up with him I sent him some emails and he replied and he said one of the reasons he was not convinced is that in North America uh, the mastodon survived some like 2,000 years after the first humans arrived and so he, he said that you'd think that'd be enough time for them to adapt. Uh, and it wasn't like a instant, the instant the humans arrived, they, they went extinct. In fact, there was this, it, the hypothesis is known as the overkill hypothesis. And that's basically that when these early hunters arrived with their uh, advanced technology, the bows and arrows with poison tips. They put an end to so many of these large creatures. And so one of the things which I forgot to mention that is actually relevant to both humans and to elephants is that these, the elephants that survived 
with the elephants that were more adaptable and more flexible. And in the sense of the Asian elephant, they can live in open environments on grasses, but they can also live in closed forests like tropical rainforest. They have a way of surviving by uh, seeking out palm trees and they will uh, eat the heart of the palm. They will also eat palm fruit and then, yeah. So they have, they have ways to get around in the rainforest. And it seems that, and this is my theory as to why they survived is that because they were able, able to adapt the rainforest, inside the rainforest, it's actually easier to, uh, to hide from the hunters. But I think it's slightly more complicated than that because you have other things affecting the, whether or not people can survive inside the rainforest. And th this point about um, all of those early humans going extinct, the early, early human species going extinct, is that there is very strong evidence that they could not survive inside the rainforest and that they, they lived mostly on the edges of the seashore and uh, in open areas where there was more food. Non-homo non, uh, sapiens sapiens. Well, several species. You've got Homo erectus, and um, from Southeast Asia, we've got like over the last few years, there've been uh, this hobbit-type species found on Flores, Homo floresiensis, and then uh, just last year there was uh, one found in the Philippines, Homo luzonensis, and then there's uh, something really intriguing called the Denisovans. Uh, that they, there were remains that found in a cave in Siberia, the uh, Denisova cave. And they got the DNA from those specimens to kind of like draw up a map. And they found that these people were actually uh, significantly different from, uh, from us, from anatomically modern humans, from the humans that actually came out of Africa about 100,000 years ago. And um, despite that, there was some intermixing and that it seems that all non-Sub-Saharan African humans today have about one or two percent of our DNA from these Denisova populations. But um, there were, um, well, there's a higher proportion, remarkably higher proportion, some like 5% of the DNA of the Australian Aborigines and the Melanesians from Papua New Guinea um, come from, uh, from these Denisovans. So it, that basically um, is known as an Australo-Denisovan, uh, Southern Denisovan population, you know. The Denisovan cave is far north in Siberia, mm -hmm. but it seems that there were some in the south as well, but there have been no fossil or no bones remains found. Although it seems that there have been some, like in Malaysia, there uh, in Perak in Malaysia, there are these stone tools that have been found that maybe came from these people. And uh, well, it's still a, a really difficult question, but it that. The general consensus is that these early people were not able to live in the rainforest. Mm -hmm. and it's only, uh, so this, this raises 
very interesting point as to how these hunter-gatherers today are living inside the rainforest. And yeah, it's, I, I remember reading about um, how jungle peoples are smaller and that's an adaptation to the conditions of living in a jungle. So even perhaps early um, Homo sapiens sapiens were not likely to live in the jungles, in, in the thick jungles. Uh, it's not a favorable place for, for maybe the, the humans to migrate to when um, finding food along the coast is, is perhaps much easier. Uh, you have shellfish and um, tide pools where one can easily catch crabs and, and, and so on. Um, yeah, so that might be another reason why the the elephants found uh, sort of refuge in in the uh, in the jungle. But then I also wonder personally if if uh, climatic change, sudden rapid climatic change, uh, wasn't maybe very much involved in in the disappearance of many of these uh, proboscis species. These what is the 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 term for What's the term for the big elephant, uh, I guess, family? Proboscidians. <clears throat> Proboscidians, yeah. So that includes things like stegodons. But yeah, I think we, I, I refer to them loosely as elephants. Mm -hmm. yeah, but they are somewhat different from the... Because, because I, um, I'm quite interested in, uh, once I heard about it, uh, the rapid climatic change that happened... Um, about 12,000 years ago or something. Um, yeah, the end of the Ice Age. Yeah, the end of the Ice Age and also the, the beginning of the previous Ice Age and uh, involving um, likely, uh, 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 what is it, outer space objects, you know, comets or something like that, uh, hitting the Earth, the ice sheets over North America and dramatically changing the, the climate of the Earth and raising sea levels drastically like the Sunda shelf um, mm -hmm. suddenly being submerged. Um, this, this uh, would change vegetation um, and, and uh, very specialized, maybe um, megafauna would have difficulties adapting. And that was also in um, this article I read called the, um, what's it called the hidden, no, no, the lost forest gardens of Europe. The author, I'll have to find it. He would be great to have on the pro program as well. He he mentions how it was likely um, the, the sudden onset of colder climates in Europe um, necessitate, necessitated the populations to adopt grains as a staple food as they could be reliably cultivated year after year and, and, and renewed in one year versus a tree which which needs to grow for several years, many years before it becomes uh, fruit bearing, and uh, yeah, and having the and animals being able to run away uh, made it difficult for these humans, which were uh, generally uh, hunter gatherers slash what you what we mentioned before, uh, para agriculturalists, people who sort of tended the ecosystems in a way to make them more favorable to them. Um, how they turn to uh, these, uh, the grains. So anyway, it's a very interesting time uh, with so much happened and the disappearance of these elephants. Um, 
the changes in uh, human behavior as well. So where to go from here is a question in, in our discussion. Yeah, well, I, I, a few things that you've mentioned that are really interesting. One is this idea of the short, relatively short stature of uh, some of these forest dwelling people. And that is known as the pygmy phenotype. Basically, it's a significant, the, the hunter-gatherers in uh, Peninsula Malaysia, Samang, uh, including the Bate and the Jahai, they seem to be significantly shorter than, uh, than the groups that practice within farming and the agriculturalists. And one reason that is put forward for that has been that they spend a lot of time in the trees, climb up the trees to escape elephants, like I mentioned in my talk. But another reason they climb the trees that I didn't really mention is that a uh, very so important source of nutrients are uh, 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 the fruit and um, and honey. And so they climb up trees to get at the honey and to get at fruit like durian before it falls to the ground. It's normally, uh, or because once it, it falls to the ground, then they have to fight with the elephants and the tigers for the fruit. And um, the theory is that it, um, well, it's actually um, safer to climb if you're short, because if you fall, then you won't get as badly injured. The, yeah. the conditions in the forest too, if, if one's ever been there, um, I know maybe not in a primary forest, but definitely in a secondary forest. Uh, there's, if you're walking on a trail and there's a down, there's down branches and uh, logs and fallen over trees, and you need to go under it. It's, <laughs> I remember walking with, you know, with uh, some of the friends I, I have in uh, Malaysia, and they were telling about walking with Mayam and or the the women of the Batek uh, village, and how easily they they walk on these trails, whereas they have to bend over and 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 crawl through these <clears throat> crawl through these uh downed logs uh, to get through the path whereas the the others can sort of just quickly uh, navigate in the trail so there's advantages to being small in the in the jungle for sure yeah so the, the, this that orang asli conference uh, that one on uh, orang asli health and well-being mm -hmm. that was organized by uh, some biological anthropologists like uh, Thomas Kraft and Vivek Venkataraman. And they, um, they've recently done some papers on that, looking at whether it is easier for these guys to walk through the forest. And um, I don't really understand it fully, but it's got something to do about uh, like how wide their, uh, their gate is and and climbing over stuff and clambering under stuff. So it's so like, yeah, I'm sure that that has something to do with it. Being able to move quickly, both through the forest and also up and down trees. Yeah, and maybe laterally as well. I imagine uh, being smaller, one can turn 
faster, um, especially if there's a lot of trees and so on, one has to chase something down. Um, it'd be easier to, to navigate through a bunch of trees and change direction than, than, than as a yeah. bigger person yeah. having a smaller gate. Very interesting. And I wonder if that isn't a reason um, for also the, they were mentioning the increase in size in um, the children of the Batek and other, um, some, is it some, some, the Simang, Simang. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know, that's uh, just speculative on my part, but uh, very interesting. Uh, we've already veered off from the elephant relation, but I was also wondering if there was, if there isn't a very strong relationship, uh, sort of a religious or um, yeah, a religious belief system between perhaps uh, early uh, Homo sapiens sapiens um, and uh, elephants that continues to this day or, or has been modified and evolved and changed to this day. I know that's something that uh, my friend is very, um, he he feels he hasn't elaborated on it um, to me about the details. He wants to save that for in person, but he he said that there there's something very special about uh, elephants, and I think people generally have a very fond have a fondness of elephants that they don't for say a cow or something. Or although people do tend to like cows too, <laughs> but yeah there's something that people like about elephants and i wonder if that's something that you came across also in in your research i know you have uh some of the the folk tales that you've uh, come across yeah so it's a bit mixed and i haven't really drawn any strong conclusions but some of the older literature says that these even hunter gatherers would hunt elephants and uh, there's tales of them using blow pipes to uh, attack the elephants by targeting the elephant's eyes, like a poison blow pipe to the eye of the elephant that might uh, actually kill it. And there are also stories about them setting uh, kind of lying in wait and then stabbing the elephant as the elephant goes past. But yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, hard to imagine that all of the stories would be true. There's <clears throat> the, uh, just a uh, insight on the accuracy of the blowpiping skills. It's amazing how, how accurately they can shoot the blowpipe darts. It's, 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 it's really incredible. So hitting the eyes, I, I, it's totally, totally within the... Their capabilities um and of course the belief systems wouldn't be universal every group would have different relationships and different groups would perhaps have uh, taboos uh, whereas others are uh, uh, preferences for perhaps elephant meat as they uh, have a different relationship in terms of um uh, the land use um uh, especially especially hunter-gatherer versus the swideners or the settled agriculturalists yeah, so one of the one of the kind of I I try to draw some general conclusions and say that the hunting gatherer groups had a more respectful relationship than some of the more settled groups. But 
what was quite clear is that all of the people that I spoke with, including like the Malay villagers who really very, uh, uh, very much adopted settled agriculture a long time ago, they all had um, a large amount of respect for the elephants. And there was this one story, which is a very consistent story saying that you shouldn't speak ill of the elephants. If you do, then they will hear you and then they will come and, and, and get their uh, revenge on you. So they would even, they have all these taboo names for elephants and it's, it's actually very common to refer to them as Orang Basar, which kind of like means, uh, literally it means big person, but uh, it sort of means chief as well. So rather than like speaking ill of them, it, yeah, it's very common for people to attribute them to having human property, uh, human souls or uh, you know, some special supernatural abilities to be able to hear when anyone's uh, speaking ill of them. I don't think there's necessarily also a conflict uh, oftentimes with having a uh, reverence for the animal and also um, being in conflict with them. I read this book. Um, I mean, it's not an anthropological book, but it, uh, if it is true, it was based on the author's uh, experiences in inner Mongolia with um, nomadic, uh, with pastoralist um herders uh, during the cultural revolution in, in uh, what is China. Um, the, the nomads, the, the herders were being um, organized by the state into these state organized uh, uh, sheep farm, uh, sheep herding uh, co-ops and the traditional ways were being, um, were basically being overturned by, uh, state state uh, practices of uh, industrial herding and and they saw the 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 wolves as an enemy, whereas traditionally the wolves to the Mongol Mongols were it's their totem it's their totem animal their symbolic uh, uh, the animal that symbolizes their their people and they were in conflict with the wolves, but also in a symbiotic relationship that was beneficial to them. So the Mongols in, in this book, um, what was the book called? Wolf Totem. It's called Wolf Totem. And the, in the book, uh, the, the old, one of the old members of the, the, the pastoral of the Mongols who still very much um, practices the old ways and, and is sad to see them go and, and sort of points out how, how, ruining the relationship with the wolves will mean the ruin of the Mongol people themselves and the destruction of, of the, of the steppe and the grassland because the wolves kept the antelope in check. And if the antelope weren't kept in check, they would just eat all the grass. And the wolves also made the horses stronger by making the horses uh, because the, you know, they would lose horses to wolves and the wolves and the horses that would have to run and be strong 
and it also taught they also the wolves also taught the mongols how to fight is what they what the, the the character explains how the wolf behavior taught the mongols how to uh, encircle and and do a feign retreats and then uh, over, overwhelm the enemy uh, that is pursuing and so on so and yet the mongols too had to keep the wolf numbers in in check and would would also uh, raid wolf dens uh, uh, and kill wolf cubs so that their numbers weren't weren't uh, too strong. Uh, so it's very interesting that uh, that relationship right there, and I, it could possibly be the the elephant relationship is at least uh, in some ways similar. I know in Thailand the ele- elephants are very much revered. Um, they're they're symbols of royalty. Uh, white elephants are and and uh, of power and of and just um, there's something endearing about them that people like in, in Thailand obviously and you know, they've built this this uh, elephant e- tourism around their elephants but then at the same time there's a enormous conflict that that uh, especially fruit farmers have with elephants um, because of the uh, loss of ecosystems that the the elephants then uh, like you write in your your paper they they raid raid crops and uh my friend who's uh, doing the reforesting he um he explains how also the the villagers there they shoot um sometimes at night even if there's no elephants to be seen they'll they'll uh light firecrackers and so on to you know thinking that uh scare the elephants away and so on yeah, there's a, a couple of interesting points there because it's a very important topic for conservation, this idea of human-wildlife conflict and increasing tolerance towards conflict, uh, increasing tolerance specifically towards uh, accepting a certain amount of damage to your crops. And uh, what I originally thought is that Right, if they are killing the elephants, then maybe that shows that they don't respect the elephants. But as, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily the case because you can, you can hunt an animal and still respect the animal. In fact, most hunter-gatherers have a tremendous amount of respect for the animals that they hunt. And um, even though, well, there's this word harmony and uh, harmony is probably not the best uh, best word to use because it's, it's it sort of gives um, an overly uh, rosy picture to things because even though uh, there is this respectful coexistence, you you can still have uh, some hunting, and so that you can as long as there is. Um, of course, there needs to be a certain amount of limits. And some of what my research found is that the younger generation who are more interested in material goods, they, they tend to lose that level of tolerance and respect. Whereas the older ones, especially when the level of conflict or the level of proper rating was lower, then the, the older generation is more accepting of 
some degree of crop rating, for example. And uh, so maybe a better word would be, well, it's also used in, in literature as a convivial coexistence. And so it's sort of accepting the fact that occasionally there will be some negative interactions, but overall it doesn't affect the, the relationship. And, and that applies, that can apply more, far more generally than just elephants. It can apply to our relationship with the natural world as a whole and how we see the planet, how we see nature. It's, it's hard to imagine a greater tolerance uh, when the conditions that lead to conflict are increasing, you know, greater pressure on ecosystems, uh, expansion of uh, residential uh, suburban zones, which push the agricultural zones further into, uh, uh, into what was previously, previously um, forest and so on. And then the reliance on cash crops versus a mixed uh, subsistence crop crops uh, is also another, you know, if you grow a big plot of pineapples, well, the elephants can't resist also because they also don't have the wild resources available. Whereas if you planted a mixed crop, uh, many of those things aren't necessarily attractive to the elephants. So you, the, the farmer who plants uh, pl pineapples to to feed himself um, through um, the cash economy, the market economy, is then at a loss because well, you can't eat pineapples all day, uh, every day for the rest. Well, I guess you could, but you, you're not gonna, you're not going to. And then uh, he's obviously selling them for money, and then the elephants come and destroy that, and well, that's his livelihood and his children's livelihood. So it's it's hard also to. One can't uh, villainize the, the people either uh, for chasing or even shooting the elephants when their lives depend on it. Uh, and as city dwellers, we don't, you know, we just wave our finger at these people and not necessarily that you're doing this, but uh, in, it's often people tend to see that uh, when they see a, an animal that's been attacked or so on, but uh, the conditions um, drive people to do that. So, it's how how can how can this tolerance uh, develop when the conditions are are what they are? Yeah, I would I would take it even further and say that most of the people in the city they would be appalled at the idea that uh, these hunter gatherers would occasionally kill an elephant and. The law is, uh, well, the law says that, all right, you're not allowed to hunt this animal. But what if by occasionally hunting an individual, you reduce the level of conflict to a tolerable level, and therefore your relationship to the elephant population is positive. Mm -hmm. Whereas if uh, you do what the government says and you never hunt elephants, then your uh, the level of conflict is very high, and your attitude towards the population is really negative. The, the other the other question is uh, how 
how much longer can this market economy continue uh, without complete destruction of uh, all ecosystems? And uh, wouldn't, I mean, I can't foresee really a top-down change where they say, well, let's move from this um, this uh, very uh, one-directional monoculture uh, market economy-driven uh, way of living to one that is cyclical uh, and more in uh, that is more tied to place. Uh, whenever I bring these things up, I kind of think that I'm falling into this very like spiritual way of speaking when you use words like balance and uh, tied to place. But I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, yeah, I just, um, what I mean to say is that, uh, well, what do I mean to say? That that I don't see foresee governments changing um, things uh, to, to alleviate the conflict and that uh, it would take something like a, sort of a collapse um, for well, people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I tend to be slightly more optimistic. Of course, uh, there are a lot of problems and there is uh, still ongoing deforestation in many parts of the world, including in Malaysia. And a lot of this deforestation is linked to this global market, market economy, such as for commodities, such as oil palm and so on. So yeah, all of those trends are really bad. But there are two trends, and these trends are connected, uh, that tend to make me actually quite optimistic as long as, of course, we must continue conservation efforts. But the, the two trends are this. One is urbanization, and the other one is um, the population, um, population growth. And so the trend with urbanization has been uh, very, very pronounced in uh, Malaysia in that a uh, hundred years ago, 80% of the population was rural. And uh, today, 80% of the population is urban. And so in the rural areas, the, the, the population is actually stable. And in some parts of rural areas, the population is declining, even in, in countries such as Malaysia, which population overall has been, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a, until recently, it's really developing country. And, and then this other thing is um, population growth or uh, what do they call fertility rates. And so the fertility rate has all around the world been uh, declining and uh, faster than people predicted. And that what that means is that um, even though the population of the planet is still increasing, it's, you know, really rapidly tapering Taper, off. Yeah. And so I, I, well, I don't think we'd we would necessarily need a collapse. Uh, I think there is potential for kind of um, sustainable retreat. But it, yeah, I, I, I don't, having said that, I don't think we should underestimate the problem. Uh, it's the, the more I like, the more I read about state making, and um, uh, the more you you understand, the more I understand about what how states came into being. Um, 
the less I believe that the that the state itself, the states and, and nations can transform themselves. Um, I believe it'll come from populate people themselves making the choice and trying to avoid um, the market economy as much as possible. People who turn to uh, things like uh, permaculture, um, living off the grid and so on. Um, it's incredibly difficult, but I mean, to, to take oneself psychologically out of this, the, the, the rat race and, you know, say, well, I'm going to live away from those things. I, those things don't appeal to me. Like I'm not going to, the sneakers, I don't need them. You know, I, I don't need to be cool. I'm going to do this thing because, you know, and then move away from family and so on and, and start doing uh, permaculture. But I see those things as very um, uh, optimistic and, and uh, restorative and, and they themselves call it, you know, restorative agriculture and so on. But um Back to uh, what was I going to say about state making? Oh yeah, uh, when you think about something like um, the the Amazon rainforest and the the Indians that live in the in the Amazon and the organization, and then you had Brazil. Uh, the Brazil government has a uh, Funai. Um, I can't remember how so some Portuguese uh, acronym, but it's the organization that that is uh, responsible for the relationship it has to the Indians uh, of the Amazon and I guess the Indians elsewhere in Brazil. But um, that when, when now with the Bolisarno government and, and you'd see what's the, de the defunding or I don't know exactly what's happened, but the, uh, the lack, the less, the degree decrease in power that that organization had that ministry of in the government and it, and the, now the um, the push into the last big pool of, of natural resources in space, right? For the the state to um, transform into market goods and uh, and uh, agricultural land, it it sort of it uh, it plays it it follows the 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 structure or the the progression of what a state will do to. Uh, to increase its power and to, to, uh, yeah, just to, to sustain itself as well. And because it has to, they have to continue growing in this, the model that, that we have. So in a place like Malaysia too, that, that, that translates to, um, logging and also mining and, and then, uh, rubber turning everything into rubber and, and, uh, oil palm and so on. So I, I just don't see the, uh, yeah, I just don't see the, uh, it being transformed uh, from the state level. But as you, I do agree that the, the population numbers and the, uh, that the population numbers uh, tapering off is, uh, is something to, to watch closely and be interested to see what happens um, as we, maybe create a sort of a more stable population. Yeah, I agree. The state's not going to transform itself. Uh, they're, they're going to be individuals and maybe some communities. And, and this, to bring it back to the hunter-gatherers, I mean, many, well, some of the groups that we, we know, they, uh, 
they are still not yet really fully integrated into the, the cash economy. And so they, they still derive a lot of their subsistence from the, from the forest. And to give you an idea, I, I recently did some work with them and I was shocked to see how much their, how much, or how little cash they can survive off. They, they are they're earning less than a hundred US dollars a month. And, uh, and that's, not, that's for like a, an entire family. And, and uh, I, I know it's kind of like, um, uh, which is, it's like less than 10% of what um, people in the, in the cities normally be getting. Well, that is, is in our world considered pov impoverished, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's how, um, uh, yeah, this one is defines poverty in our yeah. world, but really, if if you can take care of yourself, and and I'm not, you know, I don't need to convince you, but if you can take care of your needs without money, I mean, that's that is wealth. That's wealth right there, and also the wealth that they have in in uh, belonging and uh, tradition, and they don't have the um, the uh, the anxiety levels and the 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 questions that we have to deal with as as uh, citizens of the uh, nation state so to say i mean they um they never have to think of well where do i belong you know they it's they never think you know should i move to this city or take on the you know this should i listen to should i get should i listen to hip-hop music you know so i can fit in you know do I need to buy this uh, these sneakers to look cool? So those things uh, they they have a whole type of wealth that is not that is so inconceivable to us that we don't even we don't even recognize it, or most well, people. I I would say generally what you said is correct, but some of them now are are being encouraged to go to school, and when they go to school, then they face all of those pressures when they are confronted by people who are not from their community. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real problem because uh, it often results in bullying. So they get bullied by the, the mainstream uh, of Malaysian society. Yeah, for having the... Um the hair that they do and the dark skin, the, 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 the way they speak. And well, it's, it's everything uh, for being different, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very much othered. Yeah. The, there's a really great documentary that explains this very well um, called ancient futures uh, learning from Ladakh is by a woman. Um, Norberg Hodge is her last name. Helena, Helena Norberg Hodge. And it, she is an, I believe she's an anthropologist and she spent time in Ladakh in the nineties. Uh, and she documented the change that was happening to Ladakh society uh, as the state uh, and the global economy was arriving and uh, extending its uh, influence into the mountains of uh, Ladakh and the villages there and how the 
the students who previously the the people who students previously didn't go to school, you know, suddenly their ch children were being put into school and they were learning Hindi instead of the, the state language uh, instead of um, their Tibetan languages. And they, they were seeing images of Michael Jackson and um, Madonna and they wanted suddenly to be cool and wear sunglasses and, and the, um, the, the, subsidized wheat uh, that was being brought in was cheaper than what they were growing there. So it, it very much disrupted the, uh, the structures um, and institutions that uh, were present inside of the Ladakh uh, communities. And it, it was very interesting, like at the very beginning, I think of the documentary, she, she mentions how when she first got to Ladakh, um, she asked, you know, some, uh, last the people like where where's the poor uh poor house you know show me some poor people's houses we don't have poor people here you know there's that doesn't exist they just looked at her like she was kind of crazy but um when uh, five or ten years later you know the teenage boy couldn't you know he he was complaining about how poor he was or how poor the people there were you know because they didn't have these he was comparing himself to the, the ideals of, of um, what he was being taught, you know? So that's, that's definitely a, a problem. Um, and it's an unfortunate one that I try to express to, to friends and, and they tend to um, tell me that I'm being uh, paternalistic or something like that. They don't use the term, but they're saying, uh, well, how, you know, obviously these people want to join the market economy and, you know, you shouldn't want them to remain in, in their, primitive state or something like that. So how do you, how do you um, respond when, if, or, or do you agree with these people? Uh, yeah, well, this is a very good question. I would say that uh, probably the best way for us to discuss this productively is to bring someone like uh, Om on, on the podcast. Maybe we could bring him uh, next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he might be able to even come on on WhatsApp, so we can do a WhatsApp uh, video, WhatsApp call, uh, if we set the time, and then we can discuss it with him directly. That would be amazing. That would be incredible. There's so many things we could ask him as well. But uh, yeah, definitely. It, it's always nice to have the people's uh, answers themselves. Yeah. Especially for questions like the one you just asked, which mm. I've, I've heard it answered by other people like Colin Nicholas, who runs the Center for Angasi Concerns in uh, Malaysia. He says that um, the Orangasi definitely do want development. They do want uh, all the benefits of modernity, but they want it on their terms. They don't want it imposed on them. They don't want someone else to describe the way in which they take it up. Uh, they don't want to have to be told how they uh, and which technologies mm -hmm. they adopt. And they certainly don't want the, um, the forest generally cut down. I mean, that's, they, they want, they, generally unless the children again are put into school and the means to continue that way of life is 
is taken away that uh, they generally wish to continue doing the things that they did have have known as children and grew up with that their parents did as well. That's generally true, although yeah. there are many exceptions because in some situations uh, there will be groups that if they were to keep the natural forest, uh, then they might be left behind. And some of them have gone to great lengths to make sure their children get a uh, get a, 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 a modern education and, and even to the extent of sacrificing their connection with their family. And so like the kids young as maybe six years old are sent off deliberately uh, mm-hmm. by the parents because they know or they feel that that's the only way that their children will be able to um, continue better. to have any uh, preferable way of living uh, in these conditions. And I think that's an important point that that people tend to overlook. And, and it's that uh, people have this idea uh, or there's this idea that our our gadgets and our way of life is so appealing that people abandon their their the, the way that they've been living for this one, but what is the, the process is actually more that the, the way that they've been living and the, the strategies they've, they've taken to avoid inclusion in the state have come to a dead end where there is no more forest. There's very little forest to um, survive in uh, or, or to continue in, uh, continue living in. And that force is severely compromised or they've been banned from it, uh, banned by the government because of uh, conservation or it's been logged and it becomes secondary forest, which is um, much harder to hunt and and gather in than a primary forest. And, uh, And also conflicts with perhaps neighbors and so on and poachers that they don't see a viable way to continue that way of life and and then you know it's then the option of sending your kids to school becomes much more attractive yeah it's it's, it's rather tragic when that happens unfortunately in peninsula malaysia there are still many places which do have access to forests and then we do have we do still have some really nice forest reserves and national parks which I still have relatively intact rainforests. So back back to your um, thesis and the elephants. Why did you pick that topic specifically? All right. Well, I didn't actually. Uh, um, right. The the topic which was initially suggested to me was human elephant conflict. And I thought that was overly negative. I thought it'd be better to look at the the relationship. So I changed it to uh, look at the relation between humans and elephants in Peninsula. And even though the focus that I I think like my donor and the project would uh, initially they, they thought I would focus very much on the current um, conservation issues and the current conflict and documenting the conflict, I decided that not enough work had been done on the background 
on the history, on the ecology. And so I, I kind of did that as, as a groundwork in which, yeah, I hope it, it sort of like puts the current situation in a better context. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's just, the whole project that I was part of called Management and Ecology of Malaysian Elephants is very much a conservation biology project that, that wants to develop, um, well, use science to come up with solutions for conservation of elephants. But one thing that's very clear is that you can't just look at the conservation in isolation and you need to look at the, the big picture about uh, so-called development of the country and the development of these rural communities in particular. So yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's kind of the background and my motivation for doing it. Yeah, a question arises uh, that maybe is... Uh... You know, it's it's not um, well. Anyway, the the question is, um, why is it? Why even keep the elephants around? Like, wh why not? If they if there's such a problem to uh, to farmers and so on, and conflict to if there is conflict, um, why why have the elephants when we could, we could All right, so that's a good eradicate them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, most of most of the time, in fact, like where I stay in KL. The elephants were eradicated like 50 years ago. They all moved out, and the ones that remained which were shot. But, and that still happens. That's still like the standard approach not so much to shoot them, because in, I think, in the 1970s, because there was this general uproar uh, by the public, uh, especially the urban public, they didn't like the idea of the government shooting elephants. And also, all around the world, it, was, it generally felt inhumane to be shooting the elephants. So instead, the elephants are caught and translocated, uh, shipped, uh, moved to moved into a protected area, which sounds nice, but um, well, this is unfortunately it causes a lot of problems because after time they will return to the place they were taken from. And uh, maybe if they don't return, then they will cause problems in other places. They will go somewhere else and cause problems somewhere else. And I imagine that they, there's inter, there would be a conflict between elephant groups too, the different elephant cultures, uh, because the one, yeah. one group of elephants already living there and then suddenly some other elephants are brought there. Yeah, so the elephants are very strongly social animals. And so it's like a someone coming and catching you, taking you away from your family and plunking you somewhere else and expecting you to, uh, to not suffer from the stress of uh, translocation and be able to adapt to your uh, destination. It's, these are all assumptions which are proving to be uh, uh, not so right. But, uh, but to get back to the question, why people want to conserve elephants, I think that's a good question. And uh, you could attack you could uh, attack the question from many different angles, but uh, one uh, interesting angle which I I'm interested in is the role that elephants play in the ecology of the forest, and so they help spread 
seeds of many tree species. They actually, from the point of view of the hunter gatherers that I spoke to, they say they do like having elephants around, for mainly for one reason. And that reason is that the elephants maintain the trails. They keep the trails open. So if it weren't for the elephants moving around in the forest, the forest would very soon get a lot more dense. And it gets back to your point about the difficulty in walking in a dense forest. Mm -hmm. And related to that, not just moving along the trails, the elephants will also uh, be defecating fruit seeds along the trail. So, th so it's, it's wonderful, you know, not only they keep the trail open, but they allow uh, for concentration of fruit trees next mm -hmm. to the trail, which humans can benefit from as well. Right, a dispersal, but and yet a beneficial dispersal of yeah. the, uh, the, the species of, of plants that yeah. uh, humans also like. I mean, I, as you answer the question, um, I, I have an answer came, comes to mind for the question that I, I pose, and that's maybe also something that uh, is more, or that I imagine perhaps hunter-gatherers and other non-sort uh, non of scientific peoples would, would answer is that that's such a ridiculous question that and I, I in asking the question i knew it was i mean everyone sort of that's why i asked the question the way i did in, in that i think everyone inherently feels like of, of course we don't want to eradicate all elephants i mean elephants belong here as much as we do and i think that's the that would be the response of some someone who is perhaps in a hunter-gatherer culture is that they they have a right to be there as much as anyone else and it they don't need to be uh allowed to stay there so to say allowed because they have necessarily a beneficial use uh although the more we research we we find out how much they benefit the whole ecosystem and and humans as well and i'm sure that's not lost and as you point out it's not lost on them either but uh but the simply the 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 default or the uh, default uh, assumption is that well they don't need to have a beneficial purpose to be here and in our um, or in this current uh, way of scientific thinking and um, uh, market economy thinking is well there needs to be a a beneficial reason for them to be there a justifiable reason for them to be there that's not just inherent yeah right um shall we wrap it up I yeah sure yeah. I, th I thought it was a good uh, session uh and uh be nice to work on uh getting a guest to come uh, yeah i think so we're we're uh covering a lot of the same ground it'd be great to have a guest on although i i think there's so many more questions about elephants specifically that that come to mind now that we're finishing the program but uh i guess we'll just have to do that another time 